1: Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today, we're studying chapter four of this book, Developing a Life Practice, the path that leads to enlightenment. In this chapter, I share the four noble truths to help you establish right view. This is so critically important to your path to enlightenment that it was the very first discourse of the Buddha after he awakened to enlightenment He shared the Four Noble Truths with his first five students in order to help them establish a foundation in understanding right view. Prior to the Buddha awakening to enlightenment, he ended up studying with two other teachers where he was being taught various things that didn't lead to enlightenment. Some of the things that he was being taught were like hanging yourself upside down from trees, piercing the skin with metal implements, even laying on bed of nails and things like this. The thought at that time with certain teachers was that if you can transcend the physical pain of the body, then you can attain enlightenment. But ultimately, the Buddha discovered that this wasn't true. As he advanced through each of those two teachers' disciplines and realized that as being declared as a master teacher by both of those teachers in their discipline, his mind was still discontent and he had not yet attained enlightenment. So therefore, he moved out on his own in order to try to understand the path to enlightenment, where he eventually did attain enlightenment through gradual training and gradual progress. As part of this journey to enlightenment, he discovered that trying to transcend the pain of the physical body to experience enlightenment was a wrong view. To attain enlightenment, it's not about causing physical pain to the body in order to transcend that to get to enlightenment but instead it's about acquiring wisdom to antidote this poison of ignorance or unknowing of true reality among many other defilements or pollution of mind that needs to be eradicated in order to attain enlightenment so it's in the discourse of the four noble truths that we establish right view having the right view of the world, and what's actually causing the mind to be discontent. Without understanding the true cause and how to eliminate discontentedness, you wouldn't be able to eliminate discontentedness. So in four simple statements, the Buddha explains discontentedness, he explains the cause, he explains how to eliminate it, and he explains the path forward to completely eliminate discontentedness from the mind. And we describe this as the Four Noble Truths. The reason why is because the Buddha knew that they were true. I know that they're true. Other people know that they're true as well. But in order for you to experience enlightenment, you will need to learn the teachings and then reflect on them and then practice them to see the truth for yourself so that you know that it's true. This is how you acquire wisdom in order to antidote the ignorance or unknowing of true reality. Without understanding these four noble truths, you will not be able to establish right view and then build the rest of your life practice in order to experience enlightenment. Establishing right view is so utterly important to your practice the Buddha would often make this the very first discourse that he would ever speak to brand new students, not just his first five, but as he met new students and new students came to study with him, this would oftentimes be the very first discourse that he shared. He described establishing right view as being so important. He described it as a breakthrough that once somebody understands the Four Noble Truths and sees the wisdom in it, establishing right view, they will have broken through. Because in the unenlightened state, we practice wrong view. We go around and we blame others for our discontent mind. We might say, oh, you're making me angry, or you're making me so frustrated, or you are irritating me. Well, what we discussed today and what I'm sharing in the Four Noble Truths, you will see that it's not true at all that somebody else is making you angry or some situation is causing irritation in the mind it's actually our own mind that is causing itself to experience discontentedness and when you understand this and you can reflect on these four noble truths and you start practicing them then you can experience this breakthrough where you no longer are blaming others or blaming situations for the discontent feelings because if it truly is other people that are causing our discontentedness, then that means that we need to go around and train 7.5 billion people in the world to do things our way. And if you're training people to do things your way, and I'm training people to do things my way, and Bosom's training people to do things his way, how will anybody know how to interact with us? And through having wrong view, thinking that others are the ones who are causing our discontentedness, This is oftentimes what the unenlightened mind does is goes around and tries to control other people to do things our way. What the Four Noble Truths can do for you along with establishing right view and having this breakthrough is liberating you from having to go around and train everyone else and control everyone else to do things your way. Because once you understand what's causing the discontent mind Then you can use that wisdom to focus on the real problem, which is in your own mind. And when you can train your own mind, get to the root problem, the root cause of all your discontentedness, then you can actually resolve it. If you go around and continually try to control or teach others to do things your way, it's not going to be possible for people to do things your way. Therefore, you're always going to be experiencing discontentedness because you're not focusing your attention on the real source of the problem. The real source of the problem is deep in your own mind and through learning, reflecting, and practicing the Four Noble Truths, you'll be able to discover that and then remedy it through the teachings of the Buddha. Applying the training that he teaches, you can then antidote or remedy or uproot the true problem that's causing discontentedness in the mind. So it's the Four Noble Truths where you will learn this and you will establish right view. And potentially today, if you're attentive in class and you ask questions and you really sink your teeth into what's being shared, you may actually have a breakthrough today where you can truly see that all the discontentedness that you're experiencing throughout your entire life has all been caused by this craving, desire, attachment through your own choices, through this deeply rooted pollution that's in the mind. And when you have that breakthrough, then the whole rest of this path to enlightenment is built on top of that. So I would like to welcome all of you, whether you're watching this on Facebook, YouTube, Zoom, or our podcast or anywhere else that we share this content, I'd like to welcome you to today's talk because it's so utterly important that practitioners who are embarking on this journey understand right view, and they firmly establish right view more and more and more. In order to understand the Four Noble Truths, a practitioner will need to first understand the Three Universal Truths. So I'm going to end up discussing that first before we actually talk about the Four Noble Truths. And the Three Universal Truths are building blocks for this Four Noble Truths. So in order to have this breakthrough with the Four Noble Truths, you will need to understand the three universal truths. And again, they're truths. There's people like the Buddha and others who know these are true. But that's not going to help you unless you take the time to deeply investigate the teachings, reflect on them, and then practice to see the truth for yourself, which I'm going to help you with as we progress in today's class so everything that i share with you any anytime that i'm teaching you whether in this group learning program online whether you're reading the book whether you're sending me a private message talking one-on-one whether you join me in a retreat here in thailand or some other place around the world you should never ever ever believe anything that i say belief isn't going to lead to your liberation it's not going to lead to enlightenment so as we progress in today's class I will share a bit of content with you, and then I will help you start reflecting on it so that you can see the truth. And when you independently can observe the truth for yourself, this is where the mind acquires wisdom. And this wisdom is what liberates the mind from this ignorance or unknowing of true reality. And this is how you can progress having this breakthrough and then further building all the other teachings of the Buddha on top of that. So let's go ahead and move into discussing the three universal truths as building blocks for you to understand the four noble truths. The first universal truth is impermanence. This is a foundational teaching that you will need to deeply understand. It's probably one of the more simple teachings of the Buddha to understand, but you need to deeply understand it and root it in the mind in order for you to gain understanding of anything else that the Buddha teaches along this path. The universal truth of impermanence is essentially sharing with you that everything is constantly changing and there's no permanent state. Whatever arises is going to change and then it's going to fade away. So material objects or possessions, relationships, thoughts, ideas, states of mind, everything in the world is constantly changing. Essentially, you have happiness that arises, it changes and it fades away because it's based on some condition. So there's these conditioned feelings in the mind, like anger, that arise, that change, and fade away. But not only are feelings, conditioned feelings, are impermanent, but also anything that arises, changes, and fades away is impermanent. For example, this mobile phone, it's impermanent. At one time, it did not exist. It had a bunch of components that were put together to make it arise. Now it's a phone. Over time, it changes. The screen gets scratched. The battery loses power. It functions properly in some situations. In some situations it freezes and holds and gets locked up. Sometimes I've dropped a phone and actually broken the screen or lost it or something like that. So eventually this phone fades away. It will no longer exist any longer. So this phone is impermanent. This feelings that are conditioned are impermanent. These remote control is impermanent. Relationships in your life are impermanent. This is what I'm sharing with you as part of the universal truth of impermanence. But you don't believe this. You should never believe it. So now let's move into starting to reflect so that you can see the truth for yourself. So if the Buddha is saying that this universal truth of impermanence is the truth, that means if you can find one thing that is permanent, then you've disproven the Buddha. And this is oftentimes a good way to reflect is to try to disprove the teaching because if you can disprove the teaching, then it's not true. So the way that you try to disprove the universal truth of impermanence is you look around the world and you try to find something that's permanent. So let's start with the physical body. Is this physical body permanent, yes or no? Has it been the same physical body from the time of birth and conception till now, or has it been constantly changing? The answer is it's been constantly changing. What about your hair? Is the hair always the same length, or is it constantly changing? It's constantly changing, right? It grows, it changes texture, it changes color, Hair is not permanent. What about the fingernails on your fingers and your toes? Are those permanent? Do they stay exactly the same length all the time? The answer is no. They're constantly changing. The length changes, the texture changes, the color changes. The fingernails are not permanent. So this physical body and nothing about it is permanent. Okay, well, let's move into your personal life. The relationships that you've had at different times in your life have they been permanent? Are the people that you're currently interacting with the same exact people that you've had in your life your entire life? Are you going to have relationships with these people forever and ever and ever and ever? Or have you had friends coming and going out of your life throughout your entire life? Of course, you've had people coming and going in and out of your life throughout your entire life. This is because relationships are impermanent. What about your job? Have you had the same exact job your entire life? Or have you changed around and had different jobs at different times? Well, of course, you've had different jobs at different times because your job isn't permanent. And what about your income? Has your income been the exact same income your entire life? Or is it constantly changing, going up and down and up and down and having some impermanence as part of your income? Or what about where you sleep? Have you slept in the same exact bed your entire life? The answer is no, right? All of these things are impermanent. And it's important for you to deeply soak this into the mind that all of these things are all arising, they're changing, and then they're fading away. Even like this class, this class is not permanent. We've started this class We're gonna be changing and it's gonna be changing as we go through today's class. And then eventually the class will end because it's impermanent. So if you see this as truth and you can't find anything that's permanent, then you have wisdom that you understand that all of these conditioned things are impermanent. If you're not yet seeing it, then when we get to our question time, be sure to ask questions so that you can get help to better see impermanence. And one of the things that you can do to better see impermanence is go out in the natural world because these are the natural laws of existence and you can see this all throughout the world. You can walk down the street, you can see that there's this nice sidewalk and then there's a crack, that's impermanence. Or you can look at a tree and you can see green leaves in the tree and then you see brown leaves falling on the ground. This is impermanence, that the tree is changing. You can see the growth of the tree. You can be walking down the street and the wind is calm and there's no wind whatsoever. And then a wind picks up and you can feel the wind. That's impermanence. You can be walking and it's very sunny outside and then a cloud comes and blocks the cloud and now it's kind of darker. This is impermanence. So you can walk through the natural world and start seeing impermanence for yourself if you're not seeing it clearly right now. It's important to understand that while I say all things in the world are impermanent, there is what's called unconditioned objects or unconditioned phenomenon or unconditioned things. Something that's unconditioned is going to be permanent. An unconditioned object, it doesn't arise it doesn't change, and it doesn't fade away. Enlightenment is unconditioned. It is permanent. Once someone attains enlightenment, it's actually removing the conditions from the mind that are keeping it in the unenlightened state. Through clearing out this pollution of mind, removing the conditions, then the enlightened mind is unconditioned. This is why the peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy is is permanent, that it's always there. It doesn't arise, it doesn't change, and it doesn't fade away because it's unconditioned. The peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, it's not based on any condition. It's not that, oh, I've got a new pair of shoes, so therefore I'm peaceful, or I got a new job, so therefore I'm calm. The enlightened mind has removed all of these conditions and conditioned feelings, so therefore it's a permanent mental state. And likewise, the natural laws of existence are permanent. This is why the Buddhist teachings that he taught 2,500 years ago are the same timeless teachings that existed during his lifetime. They exist now, and we're able to attain enlightenment through these teachings because. The natural laws of existence that existed during his lifetime are the same natural laws that exist today. So these natural laws have not changed. What's changed is that people learned his teachings orally during his lifetime. People wrote them down eventually. And then those teachings slowly degraded over time as people started mixing, matching, and adding things into his teachings at different times. That's where the impermanence affected his teachings. But the natural laws that we understand and that exist in the world, those are permanent. And that's why what the Buddha taught 2,500 years ago is just as applicable today as it was back then. So this is impermanence. All these things that you have in your life, your house, your car, your job, your life partner, your children, this physical body, everything here that you're touching and seeing and observing is all impermanent. It arises, it changes, and it fades away. So this is a foundational teaching that you'll need to understand in order to understand the Four Noble Truths. Without understanding this, you wouldn't be able to understand the Four Noble Truths, so that's why I share this first. The second universal truth is discontentedness. During the lifetime of the Buddha and what we actually have in the Pali Canon, he used a different language. He used the word dukkha. You'll see this commonly in Buddhist texts or in conversations where people will use the word dukkha to represent this second universal truth. And they often translate it as suffering. I don't use this word suffering. I use the word discontent, discontented, or discontentedness. And by the time I explain this to you, I will help you understand why I don't use the word suffering And if you see that word being used, you should automatically replace it in the mind with discontent, discontented, or discontentedness. Because when the Buddhist spoke about dukkha, he used the description of three feelings to describe dukkha. He said that it's pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. The pleasant feelings that he describes and that I will share with you based on the way that I look at this, is these pleasant feelings that he's talking about that is dukkha or discontentedness is happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, exhilaration, and euphoria, and all the other versions of those pleasant feelings. The painful feelings are things like sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, stress, We might even include anxiety and others in there. There's lots of painful feelings that one might experience. Maybe even jealousy or resentment can be fitted in there. Then there's feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. For me, I put boredom, loneliness, melancholy, shyness, displeased, uncomfortable, and unsatisfied. But some people say boredom and loneliness is quite painful for them. And that's okay. You can put these feelings in whatever category you like. The Buddha didn't necessarily lay out these feelings the way that I am. But he did describe pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant. And this is what he described as dukkha or discontentedness. Because what the unenlightened mind is going to experience is this happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria. It's going to experience this sadness, this anger, this frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, stress, anxiety, resentment, jealousy. Then it's going to experience boredom, loneliness, shyness, and all these other uncomfortable, unsatisfied feelings. And the mind bounces around to these different feelings at different times. You might be happy for a period of time. Then it becomes angered or frustrated. Then you become bored and lonely. There might be a little bit of peacefulness in there somewhere, but then not too long after that, oh, the mind is excited or elated. And then maybe there's a little bit more peacefulness here and there. But at some point, the mind then becomes sad or angered again. This is what the unenlightened mind does, is it bounces around from feeling to feeling to feeling, never experiencing this permanent peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy that an enlightened mind is going to experience. So when the Buddha describes dukkha, he explains three feelings, pleasant, painful, and neither painful nor pleasant. This word suffering that is used in Buddhist communities, to me, it only represents this painful feeling, essentially 33% of what the Buddha was teaching. When I experience conditioned happiness or excitement, I wouldn't say I was suffering. Or in the past when I've been shy, I wouldn't say I was suffering. Or even when I was bored, I wouldn't say I was suffering. Or if the mind was uncomfortable or unsatisfied, I wouldn't say I was suffering. And it's really important that you understand this because if we use the word suffering, then we're only representing 33% of what the Buddha was actually teaching during his lifetime. Because in order to get to this enlightened mental state, an individual, a practitioner, will need to eliminate these conditioned feelings of pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. If you're only working to eliminate painful feelings, then you're not really addressing the full problem that the Buddha discussed when he was describing this universal truth of discontentedness. So you won't hear me use the word suffering. You'll hear me use discontent, discontented, or discontentedness, in the suffering that it causes. So it's really important to understand that there's these three conditioned feelings, that there's some condition that's creating pleasant feelings. You got a new car, happy. Got a new job, happy. A new friend, a new boyfriend, a new girlfriend excited elated thrilled that's a conditioned feeling the mind is basing its inner feelings on some condition that's a pleasant feeling and the mind is discontent because if you've ever experienced the time where the mind has become very happy or excited or elated and maybe you've dropped something and broke it or you twisted your ankle or you said things that you would have preferred not to say because you've lost your concentration that's because the mind was discontent. So when the mind becomes excited based on some condition, then the person has lost concentration. And that's why we might fall down. We might twist our ankle. We might drop something and break it. We might say something that we would have rather have not said because the mind is discontent or discontented or discontentedness. Same thing, painful feelings. Nobody enjoys feeling sad or angry or frustrated or Having guilt or shame or fear, this is discontentedness. And likewise, a mind that is experiencing boredom, loneliness, melancholy, shyness, or any of these uncomfortable, unsatisfied feelings, the mind is discontent, discontented, or discontentedness. And these are undesirable mental states or undesirable feelings because the mind is oscillating up and down, up and down, bouncing all over the place. And there isn't this peacefulness, this calmness, this serenity, this contentedness, or this permanent, unconditioned joy that we experience in the enlightened mental state. The mind is chasing after these pleasant feelings, wanting them to be permanent, but they're not. And this is where the mind becomes even further discontent. But we'll explain that as part of the Four Noble Truths so you can understand why the mind's doing what it's doing. At this point, you should understand that there's these three feelings, and now to reflect on this, you try to disprove the Buddha, because if you can think of one feeling that doesn't fit into one of these three categories, then you've disproven the Buddha. So you can think any feelings that aren't on here, like, I don't have anxiety on here, you might think of, okay, that's painful, or resentment or jealousy, that can be painful, or if you have other feelings that you've experienced, you try to see, does it fit in here or does it not? Because if you can find just one feeling that doesn't fit into these three, then you've disproven the Buddha, and therefore, this isn't the truth. But if you can observe that yes, your mind does experience pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, and it bounces around between all of these, then you can see this is a universal truth that all unenlightened minds are experiencing discontentedness. So I'll give you guys a chance to ask questions about this in a moment. The third universal truth is non-self. This doesn't necessarily relate exactly to the four noble truths, but it's part of the three universal truths. So I'll cover it here and help you understand it. Then when we get to chapter 16, where we talk about dissolving the ego, I will further explain the universal truth of non-self. I'll just give you an introduction to it here because practitioners need multiple discussions about the universal truth of non-self to fully understand it and work to eliminate it. The universal truth of non-self is essentially helping you see that there is no permanent self. The unenlightened mind thinks that there is a permanent self. It mistakenly believes and falsely believes that there is a permanent self, the mind will oftentimes associate this self-image through the physical body as being who you are as a person. Or this self-identity that's in the mind, it will mistakenly believe that this is who you are as a person. And it will hold on to this identity, and then it causes itself discontentedness. Because if you think that this physical body is you, and somebody says to you, I don't like people who shave their hair and wear all white. Why are you wearing white that looks so stupid or so idiotic or some other derogatory term? If you heard that from somebody and you were somebody who shaves your head and wears all white, and you have this personal existence view, this self in the mind thinking that these clothes and this shaved hair is you, then when you hear that from somebody, the mind's going to become discontent. It's going to get angry. It's going to get frustrated because you're identifying this self-image as being who you are as a person. But when you let go of this personal existence view and you realize non-self and you realize that this clothes, this physical body, this self-image is not you. It's not who you are then you can reside peaceful when somebody's talking negatively about the self-image because you just see it for true reality what it is, which is their lack of wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. If somebody says, I hate all people who wear white, okay, I have nothing but compassion for their misfortune that they think that way. But I don't get angry when somebody says, I hate all people that wear white because that isn't who I am as a person. These clothing, this body, this hair, this self-image, this projection of what people see is not who I am as a person. And then likewise, there can be a self-identity in the mind where there are certain things that you identify with. I'm a man who has a son and I live in Thailand and I'm a Buddhist teacher. And someone can start identifying with these things. And if you hear or you see somebody say, All Buddhist teachers are yada, yada, yada. You know, I hate all people who have children. I think that living in Thailand is the worst thing anyone could ever do for their life. And if somebody talked this way very negatively, if you identify with this as being who you are as a person, then when you hear these things, the mind with this personal existence view, thinking that this self-identity of being a Buddhist teacher Of being a father, of living in Thailand, that self-identity, the person then becomes angry because they identify with this self-identity that's in the mind. And what the Buddha is saying in the universal truth of non-self is none of that is you. That's not who you are. That identity, those labels that get held on into the mind is not who you are as a person. And as long as you cling to this, falsely believing that what's in the mind as your self-identity is who you are as a person, you're going to continue to experience discontentedness. So as part of the Buddha's path, he helps you to see and helps you train the mind to let go of this personal existence view and realize non-self so then the mind can reside peaceful, no longer clinging to this self-identity or self-image as being who you are. The challenge with the unenlightened mind is that at birth, we were all given a name as a label, and this label has been used throughout our life to refer to us. And then the mind starts associating a certain self-image or a certain self-identity with this label, like the name David. And now this label of David becomes the self-identity of the individual, becomes the self-image of the individual. And say you identify with your name very closely. Well, when you hear somebody talking derogatory, like I hate all people named David, then you will take that personally and you will get angry and frustrated. Or you might even experience a situation where you're holding on to this name David so closely that when you come around other people named David, you might get angry or hostile because somebody else has the same name as you. Well, if you identify with this label of David as being who you are as a person, then there's this personal existence view in the mind, and it's part of the pollution that's keeping the mind in the unenlightened state because it can't reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy when it's constantly getting upset or angered or frustrated based on this personal existence view of this self-image and this self-identity that the mind is holding on to. So as part of this path, I will teach you later more about this and how to eradicate this from the mind so that you can reside peaceful, no longer thinking or falsely believing that there is a permanent self here. Essentially, what we have is we have a physical body and there's this mind that has come together for this existence. But neither of those are you. Neither of them are the permanent self. This physical body is impermanent. This mind is impermanent. Therefore, there is no permanent self. But as long as the mind's holding on, thinking that this is the permanent self, then the mind's going to continue to experience discontentedness. So, let me just pause here with this discussion of the three universal truths and give you guys a chance to ask any questions that you might have. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and our moderators will see that and be able to ask your question for you during the class. Or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand, ask any questions or follow-up questions that you like, and I'd be pleased to help answer any questions that you have. So I'll just turn things over to Bassem and Nick to see what questions you guys have so far. Hello,
2: teacher. As for the first universal truth, which is impermanent, Are you saying that all conditioned objects, like the discontentedness, the mind experiences, such as shyness, fears, anger, and so on, are all impermanent? One can get to a point in which there is no anger, no fear, no shyness at all?
1: Yes. All of these feelings that are in the mind that are discontentedness, they're all conditioned feelings. They're based on some condition. So, For example, shyness. Someone might be shy because they have a certain self-image or a certain self-identity, a certain way that they wish for people to perceive them. There might be some arrogance or pride or some ego there that they're trying to uphold, and now when they do something like public speaking, they're fearful that this self-image or self-identity will be degraded, or people will look at them in a negative light, and now they're shy to talk to somebody. Where when you get rid of the condition of conceit and personal existence view, when you remove that pollution of mind, having a craving for people to perceive you a certain way, then the feeling of shyness can be eliminated from the mind, because the mind no longer has a mental longing with a strong eagerness, a craving for others to be perceiving you in a certain way. So when you remove the conditions that are causing these conditioned feelings, then the mind is unconditioned and it can reside permanently peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy.
2: I have a question on Facebook from Dennis. Does knowledge of non-self lead to non-violence in mind and body?
1: Nonviolence is created through practicing loving kindness and compassion for all beings. Realizing non-self will help the mind to let go of this false belief and this false understanding, this mistaken belief that there is a permanent self here. Where like in the animal world, animals have a self as well. And they can't let go of their self because they need to protect a deer going through the forest needs to constantly be on guard and protect the physical body from predators. And if a deer didn't have a self, they would be walking through the forest and this lion would attack them or this tiger would attack them and they would essentially die immediately because they're not going to run. They're not going to be fearful. But a human being doesn't need to hold on to this personal existence view, constantly defending the self The mental defense, you don't have to defend your self identity. You don't have to defend your self image. You might protect the physical body if somebody tries to cause the physical body harm as an enlightened being. But as an enlightened being, if somebody talks in a derogatory way about your self image or your self identity, an enlightened being won't experience any discontentedness because they've eradicated any holding on to a permanent self, they no longer see this self-image or self-identity as who they are as a person. An enlightened being knows that there's just this physical body in this mind that has come together for this existence, and it's impermanent. And if you hold on and cling to it, then you're going to cause yourself discontentedness, which is part of the Four Noble Truths that we're going to discuss.
2: Thanks, teacher. Let's go to Nick for resume questions.
3: Hello, teacher.
1: Hello, can team. Hear me? Yes, I can.
3: I, yeah. Okay, uh, I have this question about impermanence. So, uh, if there is no permanence, then how can impermanence exist? So there will always be two things contradictory to each other. To to be, it's like a condition for impermanence. So, uh, why we call it impermanence, right? So because of the permanent exists. Then the impermanence will exist, but if the permanence disappear, then the impermanence will not have makes any sense anymore. So in this case, everything will constantly change is the law, right? But the word impermanence itself is a fixed word, right? We can't actually change it. If there is still permanent thing, there will be impermanent. So I think it's not that true that everything will constantly change because the word impermanence itself is a fixed one
1: okay let me let me me help you understand more clearly so remember when i said that enlightenment enlightenment itself and the natural laws of existence are Mm -hmm. permanent right so a natural law of existence Mm -hmm. is impermanence so impermanence is permanent Mm -hmm. right so that's because the universal truths are part of the natural laws of existence so this natural laws of existence, they didn't arise, they don't change, and they don't fade away. I mentioned how those are permanent. So one of the jokes that we say in Buddhist culture is we say impermanence is permanent, right? So, It's permanent. Right. It's permanent because it's a natural law, right? It's a natural law of existence. So The natural law is explaining to you that all conditioned things or all conditioned objects are impermanent, but impermanence itself is permanent because it's part of the natural laws of existence, and that is permanent.
4: Right.
1: Do you see that?
3: that, Yeah, I understand that. That's what I mean, like, because of the the sentence that impermanent, impermanent is permanent. So it's actually already fight against the law itself. By this, right? it's actually like a conflict in between.
1: It's not T. You're just not seeing it. Is that there's conditioned objects and then there's unconditioned objects. Yeah. All conditioned objects right. are in, are impermanent. So they're going to arise. They're going to change, and they're going to fade away. But the natural laws of existence are unconditioned. They don't arise, they don't change, and they don't fade away. So impermanence is part of right, the natural exactly. laws. Let me let me speak. Impermanence is part of yes. is part of the natural laws of existence, and therefore they're going to be permanent. Okay. So we're gonna move to we're gonna move okay, to Nick. You. We're gonna move to Nick now, uh, so that Nick can ask any questions okay. from Zoom. Hello, teacher. Hello, Nick. This contentedness, uh, or dukkha
4: explained this way, seems to be all-encompassing of feelings, uh, all conditioned feelings. Is there such a thing as
1: unconditioned feelings, like joy, or are these mental states? I think of them as mental states. I think of them as mental states. I think of peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy as a mental state that is permanent.
4: Thank you, teacher. We have a question that I'll read from Marion. She asks, would you consider compassion as an action rather than a feeling, the feeling that expresses compassion and empathy?
1: So compassion is a mental state. It's not a feeling. Compassion is a concern for the misfortune of others. This is a mental state that you cultivate in the mind. It's not a feeling itself. Feelings are going to be based on some experience. They're conditioned feelings and feelings have at their nature something that has been experienced in order to arise a feeling in the mind. But something like a mental state of compassion is something that you're gonna cultivate and develop in the mind, and then you're gonna practice this concern for the misfortune of others.
4: She continues to ask, if compassion is a feeling, then when I experience compassion, wouldn't I be unenlightened then?
1: Yeah, so the first part of the question answers. The second part is that compassion is not a feeling. It's a mental state that you cultivate having this concern for the misfortune of others, and then you practice that as a healthy mental state. And in order to attain enlightenment, a being would need to cultivate and practice the healthy mental state of compassion. This is going to be part of chapter 14 that we're going to talk about the four healthy mental states of loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, these need to be cultivated in the mind in order to attain enlightenment. So compassion is not a feeling. And in order to get to enlightenment, you would need to cultivate and practice compassion among other healthy mental states.
4: She has another question. How does moral or ethical conduct come into play when it comes to non-self?
1: Moral and ethical conduct as it comes to non-self. So as you learn to eradicate the self and no longer falsely hold on to the concept of a self, then you will observe with wisdom that this universal truth of non-self is true. Then you will adjust your practice in terms of your moral conduct and your mental discipline that you will then perhaps adjust the way that you interact with people and you'll have more mental discipline. But that's better covered when we get to chapter 16 and talk about dissolving the ego. That would be a much better place to discuss it rather than today. So if we can just hold off on that until we get to chapter 16, it'll be much better to cover it there.
4: And T has her hand raised, sir, so let's go to her. Uh,
3: hello, uh, teacher. I have another question about um, imponents and uh, in uh, like a fixed amount of time. So for example, in, uh, in nine months or in 10 months, right, it's like a fixed time. So for example, the baby was like, so when we uh, like was born, right, before we was born, it was uh, the, the mommy was pregnant, for example, nine months or 10 months. So it's, it's like a fixed amount of time when a changing actually um, happening, but it's not. Like we're not born in the world as no one call our name yet, right? So we don't have any identity. So there's no self at that time, and uh, before that, uh, even before uh, pregnancy, right? There will be zero me or I or we, right? So is that also a state of um, of the thing that you can call it um, impermanent? Like um, it's it's just like I don't know how you can describe this kind of state when you are zero, you are not born yet, you are not raising yet, right? You are not there yet, so after the um, fixed amount of time you have become who you are today right and uh that will change in your life but before that there will be zero so what do you think about that is that true
1: okay i'll answer the first part of your question i'm not sure that i understand the last part of your question but i'll answer the first part so pregnancy is not permanent right there's a being that arises right. in the womb and it constantly changes And while we say that pregnancy lasts nine months, a child can be born earlier, it can be born later, it's not a fixed time. So pregnancy is impermanent. So it is following this natural law of existence or this universal truth. And when a child is born, the child has a physical body and has a mind And this mind is developing further and further as it ages. And this is where that permanent self, the being starts to mistakenly believe and falsely think that there is a permanent self. The more that we age, the mind gets conditioned more and more and more that there is a permanent self, when in reality, there really isn't. But as we age, we take on conditioning that makes us falsely believe. And mistakenly think that there is a permanent self when in reality there truly isn't.
3: And yes, and about the one that the the state when we haven't born yet. When it's we don't exist yet. We are not there yet. So what do you describe that? Is that existing still somewhere in the world that we are not just becoming us? Just we should just I don't know how you call that kind of stage. And is that related to the no self also?
1: I think what you're describing is kind of what happens between births. If you have one birth and then you have another birth, what's happening in between that. And that's something that we should cover in mm-hmm. chapter 20 when we get to that chapter. Ah. Oh. So I'm going to move on uh, to there's the... There's
3: another form of rebirth, you
1: mean? I'm going to move on to the Four Noble Truths T, because I would really like to okay. ensure that the students get a chance to learn the Four Noble Truths as part of the class today. I'm not interested in going too far into non self today. So let's postpone this part of the discussion until then. So, in order to get to the Four Noble Truths and understand that, we need to first ensure that you understand the teaching of craving or attachment. You'll need to understand what this is in order to understand the Four Noble Truths. What a craving, desire, attachment is, we also refer to these as expectations or wants or holding, grasping, clinging. This is a mental longing for something with a strong eagerness, where the mind is pulling in the direction of the objects of its affection. You might have experienced this in certain situations where if you saw a new product that came onto the market and your mind just really wanted it and it was craving for it. It was longing for it. It had the strong eagerness for it. That's what a craving, desire, attachment is. Or if you have certain wants, things that the mind just wants so badly, and it's pulling in the direction of the object of this affection, and it thinks if it just gets this object, that it's going to be fully satisfied. So that's what a craving, desire, attachment is, where the mind's longing, yearning for something with a strong eagerness, wanting or expecting or grasping or clinging for this. So this is important to understand as we move into talking about the Four Noble Truths. So now let's talk about the Four Noble Truths. This is where you establish right view and you can have this breakthrough to fully understand what's causing discontentedness in the mind. This is not exact wording from the Buddha. This is a summary to help you understand the Four Noble Truths. And then in this Chapter 4, I have the exact wording from the Buddha there. But this will help you understand the Four Noble Truths and have this breakthrough to understand the cause of your discontentedness. The First Noble Truth is that everyone that is unenlightened will experience discontentedness. So if you experience conditioned, pleasant feelings, then you know that you're unenlightened. Or if you experience those painful feelings of sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, all of these discontent feelings and others, then you know that your mind is currently unenlightened. And it's really no big deal at this point because there's many people in the world that are unenlightened, but the goal would be for you to understand that the mind is currently unenlightened and then set a goal or an objective or an interest to pursue this path so that you can eliminate discontentedness from the mind. But in order to be able to set your goal on enlightenment, you need to first understand whether the mind is actually enlightened or not. So if you experience any of those Feelings of discontentedness, then you know that the mind is currently unenlightened. And all unenlightened beings are going to be experiencing that. The second noble truth is that discontentedness is caused by our own cravings, desires, attachments, because the mind wants everything to be permanent when everything in the world is impermanent. I'm going to say that a few times and I'm going to give you guys some examples to help you reflect on this and practice it. So let me say it a few times. Let me describe it and give you guys some examples. Discontentedness, those pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, is caused by your own craving, desires, attachments. That mental longing with a strong eagerness, pulling in the direction of the objects of your affection, wanting things to be a certain way. If you get the objects of your affection, if you get what you want, the mind experiences pleasant feelings. If you don't get what you want, then the mind experiences painful feelings. Or sometimes you don't even know what you want and you're just kind of bored or lonely experiencing those feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. The reason why the mind is doing this is because it wants everything to be permanent when everything in the world is impermanent. So let me give you some examples. If you've ever been in a relationship with someone, when this relationship first started, you might have experienced pleasant feelings. Oh, wow, somebody's taking an interest in me. Somebody's enjoying spending time with me. This is very pleasurable to the mind, and the mind gets this happiness, this excitement, this thrill, this elation. You're experiencing these pleasant feelings based on the condition that somebody is now showing interest in you. And someone is now interested in dating you. And this arises conditioned, pleasant feelings in the mind. But now the relationship goes on and you start having these wants, these expectations, these craving, desire attachments, wanting things to be a certain way in the relationship. And now the relationship starts to change and maybe the relationship ends now the mind experiences painful feelings, sadness, anger, frustration, maybe guilt, shame, fear, maybe loneliness or boredom. And the reason why is because the mind was conditioning these pleasant feelings on this relationship. And then when the relationship was over, then the mind experienced these painful feelings or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. The mind doesn't understand what it doesn't understand, that this relationship is impermanent. The mind was craving, desiring, wanting this relationship to be permanent, when in fact, it's actually impermanent. And when the relationship ended, the mind didn't understand this impermanence, the fact that the relationship is now over, it was craving and longing to be with this person. And because of that yearning to be with this person permanently, when the relationship was over and the mind experienced impermanence, the mind didn't like that. And that's why these painful feelings arose in the mind. The anger, frustration, the guilt, the shame, or any other discontent feelings that arose, it's because those pleasant feelings were based on the condition of the relationship. That relationship then changed because of impermanence And now the unenlightened mind isn't aware of the wisdom of the universal truth of impermanence, so therefore it experiences painful feelings. And this is where the mind is causing itself to be discontent. First, it caused itself discontentedness, arising pleasant feelings, basing its happiness on this impermanent condition of the relationship. Next, when the relationship was over, Now, it didn't like that impermanence. It craved and yearned and was holding on to this relationship, wanting it to be permanent. And when it changed and it no longer existed, that's when it experienced painful feelings in the mind, where an enlightened being isn't going to have that same experience. Another example is, say you bought a new car or some other new product, and you have these pleasant feelings because you bought this brand new sports car this shiny red Porsche or Lamborghini or Ferrari or whatever is your most ideal car that you would like to purchase. You purchase this shiny new sports car and now you drive it off the lot, you park it at the store and you go into the store and you come out and you see a scratch on the car. Now the mind gets angry, it gets frustrated, it gets irritated. First, it arose these pleasant feelings because you bought the car. It based its happiness on the condition that you have this brand new sports car and then when you came out and saw the scratch on the car that's where the mind experienced impermanence and it doesn't like that it doesn't understand this universal truth of impermanence therefore these painful feelings arise this anger this frustration this irritation and oftentimes we even blame somebody else whoever scratched my car is making me so angry But in reality, it's the craving, desire, attachment. It's the mental longing, craving for things to be permanent that is causing the mind to be discontent. Because somebody else could have that same experience, come out and see the scratch and be like, hmm, thank goodness I got insurance. I need to go take it to get fixed tomorrow. But when the mind is unawakened to the natural laws of existence. And it doesn't understand this universal truth of impermanence. It's going to see the impermanence of the scratch on the car. And it's going to say, I'm angry. I'm frustrated. This other person is causing me to be frustrated. And there's people that have gotten into fights and got murdered and ruined their life just because of a scratch on a car, for example. And they've now are in jail for the rest of their life because they fought this person and maybe killed them because their mind was craving permanence, and they were falsely attributing this anger to this other person who scratched their car because they had wrong view. But when you have right view, you can understand that when you buy this brand new car, it's not gonna permanently look like this. It's impossible for it to permanently look like this because of the universal truth of impermanence. And you don't allow the mind to arise these conditioned, pleasant feelings. So therefore, when you experience the impermanence of a scratch on the car, then you don't allow these painful feelings to arise. We're not saying what's right or wrong here because it would be wonderful if nobody ever scratched your car, that would be wonderful. But the fact is, is that because of the universal truth of impermanence, this car is going to experience a scratch or the paint is going to fade, or the tire is going to get flat at some point, or the engine is gonna stop working at some point. It's only a matter of time because of the universal truth of impermanence. So if we allow the mind to arise these pleasant feelings, then we're welcoming and inviting in these painful feelings at some point in the future. The same thing when you have a brand new relationship if you have this brand new relationship with a boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife or friend or whomever, if you allow the mind to experience these pleasant conditioned feelings based on this relationship, the mind is going to then crave those pleasant feelings. And then when the relationship starts to change, now the mind isn't going to like that impermanence and it's going to experience painful feelings. This is one of the reasons why people might have a certain partner. They arise these pleasant feelings. Then when we break up and we no longer are getting along, we experience these painful feelings. Or likewise, we might have these pleasant feelings when a relationship starts. And then as it starts to change, the person might get bored with the relationship because it's now changing. It's no longer the same as it was when we were first dating. We've gone from boyfriend, girlfriend, to husband, wife, to mommy, daddy, and all of that change happened so quick, now the mind gets bored, and now someone might look elsewhere for another sexual partner and then start being unfaithful to their partner and damage the relationship. So when we understand impermanence, then we don't base our inner feelings on this impermanent condition where we allow these pleasant feelings to arise based on the condition and we don't then experience these painful feelings as a result of impermanence or change. And we can eradicate this from the mind. We can train the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently through the third noble truth. The third noble truth is explaining that the elimination of discontentedness is possible by eliminating craving, desire, attachment. When you eliminate this mental longing with a strong eagerness, then you will no longer base your inner feelings on some impermanent condition. Therefore, you won't experience these conditioned feelings of pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings of neither painful nor pleasant. You will have eradicated the condition of craving from the mind, and then the mind can just always reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Now, Before we talk about the fourth noble truth, the way that you reflect on this and the way that you can start to see the truth for yourself is think about the last time you were angry or frustrated or irritated. It might have actually been today or yesterday. Think about the experience that you were angry, frustrated, irritated. Now think about what is it that the mind wanted? What was it craving that caused it? Now, prior to today's talk, you might've blamed other people for your anger, your frustration, but now that you're starting to see the truth and you're working on this breakthrough, start looking at your own mind and figure out, okay, what was I angry about? What was the frustration about? Look inside to see what was the mental longing with a strong eagerness? What was it that you wanted? And let me maybe give an example. Let's say you have kids and your kid's room is really messy and dirty. It would be wonderful for your children to keep a clean room, but if the mind of the parent wants the room to be clean permanently all the time, and you see that the room is messy, now the parent might get angry or frustrated with the child because they have this mental longing with a strong eagerness for the room to look a certain way. doesn't mean you don't teach your child to keep a clean room. You can still do that politely, kindly, friendly, and respectfully. But when the mind arises this anger and frustration, then it's very difficult for you to be skillful and guide your child to learning how to keep a clean room when there's this anger that has arisen in the mind. The child isn't making you angry. The dirty room isn't making you angry or frustrated. It's your craving for permanence, wanting the room to look a certain way permanently. So what I'd like to invite you guys to do as part of our questions that we're going to do in a little bit is if there's a certain situation that you'd like to share that you've had recently, that there was anger, frustration, or some other discontent feeling, and you'd like to share what caused it, or maybe you're having difficulty seeing what caused it, and you truly believe that it was somebody else or something else that caused you to be angry, share that experience, and I will help you see how you're causing all your discontentedness yourself and this is how you reflect and start to see the truth and then what you do is you start moving this into practice where now and forever whenever you observe that the mind is discontent you start to look internally and you start to try to discover what was the craving desire attachments that are causing this discontentedness, because until you can identify your craving-desire attachments, how would you be able to eliminate them? So you have to be able to identify what's going on in your own mind that's causing the discontentedness to arise. And when you can identify that, then you can actually eliminate these craving-desire attachments from the mind so that they will no longer cause you discontentedness any longer ever again. And this is how you get to the peaceful, calm, serene content mind with joy, whereas if you go around continually having this longing, yearning, this strong eagerness, these constant wants, wanting things to be your own way, then the mind's gonna continue to experience discontentedness. Whereas if you can train the mind to work towards certain goals and objectives and interests, but not hold on to them so tightly, then you can get to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy because you're not wanting things to be a certain way. And the Buddha talks about in the fourth noble truth that the way to eliminate all discontentedness from the mind is the eightfold path. It's eight individual steps that lead to enlightenment. And you would need to train the mind through this eightfold path in order to train it to enlightenment. So I'd like to just kind of show you guys an overview of the Eightfold Path. As you see, right view is the first step of the Eightfold Path. Without understanding, reflecting, and practicing right view, you wouldn't actually be able to build all the other steps of the Eightfold Path in order to deeply train the mind to attain enlightenment. Next week, we're going to be discussing in Chapter 5 the rest of the Eightfold Path right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration so that you deeply understand each individual one of these steps. But right view is so important and it's such a foundational teaching that there's this chapter that's solely dedicated to helping you establish right view so that you can learn it through the book, you can learn it through this class, and then work on practicing that this week and the rest of your weeks and months forward so that you can deeply establish right view, observing and understanding that all discontentedness is being caused by your own mind. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have, because this is everything that I was going to share with you guys today. And I left a lot of time for us to be able to discuss the four noble truths and the three universal truths so that you can establish right view and have this breakthrough to understanding that you're causing your own discontentedness, and that's the reason why you can eliminate it as part of this path to enlightenment. If it's other people that are causing your discontentedness, then you have no ability to eliminate it from the mind. But because you're the one that's causing the discontentedness, this is why you can actually eliminate it. Essentially, what the Buddha's teaching as part of the Four Noble Truths, is that once you take responsibility for your discontent feelings, and you can see that you're the one that's causing them, then that really empowers you to now apply the rest of the training of this path, the Eightfold Path, to be able to now deeply train the mind, get rid of these conditions that are causing discontentedness, and move the mind to this unconditioned mind, where it can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. But in order to do that, you need to be able to establish right view and see that the real problem in the mind is craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness. It's not somebody else that's causing you to be angry. It's not some situation that's causing you to be angry. It's your own mind craving permanence, wanting things to be a certain way in the world. And when things aren't the way you want, that's when your mind becomes discontent. Or when you get the certain thing that you want, that's when you experience these conditioned, pleasant feelings. But that's just welcoming in the painful feelings at some point. So if you have a certain situation that you're having difficulty seeing that you are indeed causing your own discontent feelings, let's talk about that. Share that in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and I will help you see that. Or in Zoom, you can raise your hand electronically and we can discuss whatever challenges you're experiencing, whatever situations where you're having difficulty seeing that you caused this discontentedness yourself, I will help you to investigate that and observe that so that you can have this breakthrough. So I'll turn things over to you guys for any questions that you might have.
2: Well, do you agree that while one is basing a, uh, its uh, inner feelings on impermanent things or impermanent conditions, all what is experienced will be only discontentedness. So the mind is just navigating between pleasant feelings and uh, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. All will be only discontentedness.
1: Exactly. As long as there is craving, desire, attachment in the mind, there's always going to be discontentedness even if you have a craving to help people, something wholesome, right? There's no such thing as a wholesome craving, desire, attachment. Even if you have this craving that you want to help people and you want this so bad, if you're not able to help people, if someone isn't willing to accept your advice or your guidance, you're going to experience discontentedness. You're going to be sad. You're going to be angry. You're going to be frustrated. So even something as wholesome as helping somebody, or even something as wholesome as meditation, If you're attached to meditation, if you're craving meditation, if you have this desire, this mental longing with a strong eagerness to meditate every single day, three times a day, and that's the permanent schedule that your mind wants, well, there's going to be a situation where you're not going to be able to do that because of the universal truth of impermanence. So if you're holding on, if you're craving to meditate three times a day, for 30 minutes a session, and that's what the mind's craving and holding on to, wanting that permanence, there's going to be a situation where you can't meditate three times a day for 30 minutes or more because that would be permanence if you were able to do that. So when you experience not being able to meditate three times a day for 30 minutes or longer, if you're craving meditation, you're going to experience guilt or shame or sadness or maybe frustration so what you do in life is rather than have these expectations, these wants, this mental longing, this yearning, this strong eagerness, instead you have this goal, this objective. I would like to meditate two or three times a day for 30 minutes or more. And where possible, I'm going to actively work towards developing my life practice to be able to do that each and every day. But all the while, you got to understand in the mind that there's going to be situations where you're not able to do that. You might only get one meditation in. Or there might be an occasional day where you even skip meditation, where you don't meditate at all. Skipping meditation on one particular day isn't going to determine whether you attain enlightenment or not. What's going to determine if you attain enlightenment is if you've missed a day of meditation, what do you do next? Do you start missing multiple days where it turns into a month or two of not meditating? Surely that person's not going to attain enlightenment if they don't improve that practice. But if you miss a day of meditation or two and you then ramp up your practice and get right back into it and you're back to two or three times a day for a consistent period of time, then with this longevity, with this determination, this dedication, this diligence, you're gradually training the mind to enlightenment. But if you hold on wanting, craving, yearning, expecting permanence that you will absolutely meditate every day, three times a day for 30 minutes or longer, at some point, that's going to cause discontentedness because the mind is craving it and clinging to it. There was a situation I had two years ago where I got in a motorbike accident and there was like three, four, five days where I wasn't able to meditate. If I was craving Meditation. If I was attached to it, if I was holding on to it really tightly, then I would have been discontent during that time because I wasn't able to meditate. I had a cracked rib at the time. I wasn't really able to meditate. So you need to even let go and not hold on to wholesome things like meditation or helping people. There's going to be certain situations where you can practice generosity and you can help people and practice generosity. And then there's going to be other situations where you're not going to be able to, or you just choose not to for any number of reasons. But if the mind is craving and longing and yearning to help everyone in the world, then when you're not able to do that, you're going to be discontent. So you have to observe that it's craving, desire, attachment, even to wholesome things, that it's going to cause the mind to be discontent. Does
2: this include craving for enlightenment?
1: Absolutely. If you crave enlightenment itself, you won't get to enlightenment. So you have to get to the point where you pursue it as a goal, an interest, and an objective. And while enlightenment sounds so wonderful, this peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy, you can't even crave enlightenment. That's where the Buddha talked about the middle way. Whereas if you hold something too tight, it's going to cause discontentedness. But also if it's too loose, it's going to cause discontentedness as well, because the mind is complacent. It's sluggish. So you practice this middle way where you pursue enlightenment as a dedicated, determined, diligent practice where you're gradually moving forward towards learning and practicing these teachings closer and closer. Holding it too tight, it's going to cause discontentedness. Too loose, complacency, you're never going to get there. So you find this middle way, which is what the Buddha taught as part of this path to enlightenment.
2: We have a question on Facebook from Dennis. I notice that when one of my friends buys a new bag or item of clothing, I desire to having something for myself, even if I really do not need to buy one or afford it.
1: Yes, this is a perfect example of how craving, desire, attachment, mental longing with a strong eagerness causes discontentedness. The mind sees that new handbag or a new pair of clothes or a new jacket or new shoes and now the mind is longing for it it's having this yearning this strong eagerness and it thinks if it just gets that handbag it'll create this permanent happiness in the mind and that's all i need is that shiny new object around the corner and if i just get that shiny new object around the corner it will create lasting satisfaction So what the mind does, this unenlightened mind will pursue and pursue and pursue that craving, desire, attachment. It'll acquire that new handbag or that new jacket or the new shoes, and it will experience these pleasant feelings. But they're temporary. They fade. And then the mind's looking around. What's next? What's the next shiny object around the corner that's going to satisfy this mind? And now it pursues that and it chases the objects of its affection. It wants that, it wants that, and now it grabs onto that, and it experiences pleasant feelings, and they're temporary, and they fade, and then the mind experiences these painful feelings again. And now the mind's on the lookout for what's the next thing, and it's this constant cycle that the mind keeps going through, constantly pursuing the objects of its affection through craving, desire, attachment, never getting to lasting satisfaction or being satisfied with what is because of this longing, this yearning, this strong eagerness. So the way to solve that is to eliminate this craving, desire, attachment in the mind along with other things in order to train the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene and content with joy, to be satisfied with what is. That instead of having this craving for the new handbag that your friend has, Instead, practice sympathetic joy where you're pleased for their success, even though you didn't contribute to it. Rather than having jealousy that arises, craving, desire, attachment. Instead, just be like, oh, I'm pleased for them. They got a new handbag. But I don't necessarily need to have that handbag. I can attain this peacefulness, this calmness, this serenity of mind, this contentedness and this joy just based on what I've got right here. I don't need the long with this strong eagerness for that handbag because even if i get that handbag those pleasant feelings are going to fade anyway so why just work and chase after all of the objects of our affection when we can just be satisfied with what is we can take care of our food water clothing shelter and medical care and sure we're going to need a purse or we're going to need a suitcase or we're going to need a new pair of shoes occasionally and we will acquire those things. But it's when we base our inner feelings, wanting those pleasant feelings by acquiring these material objects that arises these pleasant feelings, these conditioned pleasant feelings, that then they will eventually fade. And now the mind's going to experience painful feelings and it's going to not like those painful feelings. And it's going to start chasing after pleasant feelings again and the mind just keeps going through this cycle over and over and over again until you have this breakthrough of the Four Noble Truths and you establish right view and you see what the real problem is, is that the mind is chasing after the objects of its affection and it's never satisfied because you perhaps would like a job that has $50,000 a year. You work really hard and you build up to that job and now you've got $50,000 a year And the mind gets this pleasant feelings. But then they start to fade. And now the mind wants 75. And now you get pleasant feelings when you get 75. And then they will start to fade. And now you want 100, 150, 200, 500,000. And the mind just keeps chasing and chasing and chasing and chasing after the objects of its affection, not realizing that it's actually causing its discontentedness. When instead you can have a certain income, be content with that, be peaceful about that, be joyful that you have an income and just know that, okay, I've got what I need to take care of this life. And I'm going to dedicate time to pursue this career and do a good job at my work. I'm going to continue to work towards improvement in my career, but I'm not going to base my inner feelings on my salary or my bank account or what type of car that I drive or what type of clothes that I wear so when we base our inner feelings on all these impermanent things that's where we're welcoming in problems into the mind and you can liberate the mind from this you can get to freedom where the mind no longer is basing its inner feelings on these impermanent conditions and that's where the mind is free it's liberated you can buy a new pair of shoes and use them And then when they get old, okay, that's fine. You just get another pair of shoes. But you're not allowing the mind to take this great pleasure, this happiness, excitement, and elation just because of a new handbag or a new pair of shoes. Therefore, you won't experience painful feelings when you can't afford a new pair of shoes or you can't get that new handbag. So you train the mind to no longer chase after the objects of its affection, but instead just acquire the things that you need. Not about our wants and what the mind wants and what it craves, what it desires, but you train the mind to acquire the things that you need in life in order to sustain this life. And that's where you can liberate the mind from this craving.
2: Adrian has a two-part question. The first part, you shared that the mind craves, attaches to permanence, but could this also be The mind's natural function, searching for learning, experience, etc.
1: This is what the mind does in the unenlightened state. When it's untrained, when it's undisciplined, it has this misunderstanding. It wants things to be permanent when everything around us is impermanent. So it's part of the lack of wisdom, that ignorance, that unknowing of true reality, That is what the unenlightened mind is experiencing. That is the natural state in the unenlightened mind. But this enlightened mind where you get to peacefulness, calmness, serenity, contentedness with joy, that's the real natural state of the mind that when you clear out this pollution, when you clear out this defilements of craving, desire, attachment, then you can get to a point where the mind is no longer yearning and longing for things to be a certain way, And you can be satisfied with what is. So you're right that it is the natural state in the unenlightened mind. But as long as you continue to crave for things to be permanent, then you're going to keep inviting in this discontentedness because things can't be permanent. It's not possible for you to hold on to relationships, material objects, jobs, income, this physical body, this life, this existence. You can't hold on to any of this stuff permanently but the mind's gonna keep wanting to do that. And as long as you allow it to do that, then you're gonna keep experiencing discontentedness.
2: The second part. And could the mind's searching be satisfied Mm -hmm. through learning Buddha's teachings and meditation or just the pursuit of knowledge in general?
1: What antidotes these defilements, these taints, these pollution of mind is learning the Buddha's teachings. That's the learning part that you start to then reflect on the teachings, then you start practicing them, and it's this wisdom that liberates the mind. What's keeping the mind in the unenlightened state is essentially this unknowing of true reality. Prior to understanding the Four Noble Truths, we don't even know why we're angry. We blame everyone else. We blame situations around us. We're ignorant. We're lacking wisdom. We're unknowing of true reality. We have wrong view where we think it's others or other situations, the things around us, we blame others for causing us to be angry. And because of that ignorance, that unknowing of true reality, we don't ever solve the problem. We try to control our relationships, like our life partners and our children, our friends, our coworkers. We try to get others to do things our way, and we think that's going to solve the problem. But we can't train the whole world to do things our way. So when you discover that other people doing things a certain way isn't the problem. The problem is that the mind wants others to do things a certain way. So when you get rid of that wanting, that longing, that yearning, and that you see that all beings are just making independent decisions, and that you can let go, no longer yearning for things to be a certain way, then you can get liberated from these discontent feelings because then you can practice this Eightfold Path and all the other teachings that the Buddha shares where you're no longer holding on, craving for things to be a certain way. So it's the Buddhist teachings that will explain to you what all the problems are in the unenlightened mind and what the remedies are, how to train the mind to eliminate those conditions that are causing the discontentedness. And when you train the mind through this wisdom, then you develop the moral conduct, you develop the mental discipline, and now you're able to control the mind. In the unenlightened state, you can't control the mind because you haven't trained the mind. You don't even know what the problem is in the unenlightened state when you're off this path. But once you gain the wisdom of what the problem is, and then you develop this moral conduct, and then you develop this mental discipline to now start controlling the mind, Instead of reacting in situations, you start responding in situations because you have control over the mind. But when we lack discipline of the mind, that's why the mind becomes angry, frustrated, irritated. It becomes shaken up. It becomes unsteady because we lack that inner discipline to control the mind. But once you've trained the mind on this whole path, then as you get more and more discipline of the mind, you can control it and it no longer experiences these discontent feelings because you've now deeply trained it and you're able to control it and have this discipline.
2: Advances says, so searching for knowledge can be considered an attachment or craving?
1: It depends how the mind pursues it. You can't just say one thing is a craving or not or an attachment or not. For example, this bottle of water, you know, we need to drink water. If you saw somebody drinking water, you wouldn't be able to tell whether it was a craving, desire, attachment unless you observe their mind and how they relate to this water. So say you went on a really long hike and you forgot to take water with you and you've been gone for eight hours and you're deadly thirsty by the time you get back to your car where the water is. Well, there's one person that can just be like, oh my goodness, I need water so bad. Give me water. I'm going to kill somebody if I don't get water, right? That's a craving, desire, attachment for the water. But there can also be someone that's like, okay, we're at the car. It's time to drink water. Let me drink some water. And then they drink water. So you could just be observing two people drinking water. One person could have a craving, desire, attachment, and one person maybe not. So it's not about the action itself of searching for knowledge that is a craving, desire, attachment. It's how the mind is doing it. If the mind is doing it obsessively and it thinks that searching for knowledge is this obsessive thing that arises pleasant feelings and when you're not able to do that, you experience these painful feelings, then searching for knowledge is a craving, desire, attachment. But the problem isn't the searching for knowledge. The problem is how the mind is relating to it, the objects of its affection. So you can still pursue and have all of these things in the world. Letting go of craving, desire, attachment isn't to eliminate relationships, eliminate cars or jobs or searching for knowledge or eliminating new shoes or eliminating clothing, for example that's not what will eliminate in a a craving, desire, attachment. Because the physical object or the thing that you're looking to acquire, like knowledge or wisdom, that's not the attachment. The attachment is the mental longing of the mind wanting those new pair of shoes. The new pair of shoes themselves aren't the attachment. Because you're going to need new pair of shoes sometimes. Because your old ones are going to wear out due to impermanence. So you're going to need a new pair of shoes. But it's when the mind is longing for it, yearning for it, wanting it, having this strong eagerness, thinking that these new shoes are going to complete you and make you whole. This is that mental longing that you have to eliminate, where if you go to the store, you have an idea that you're going to buy this new pair of shoes and you go there and they don't have the shoes and you get angry or frustrated or irritated or annoyed. That's because of the craving, desire, attachment. But you could also show up to that store, see that they don't have the new shoes that you're interested in buying and just be like, okay, well, is there another store close by that I could go to that has those same shoes? Maintain your contentedness, maintain your peacefulness and just be like, all right, I'll just go somewhere else or, oh, okay, you don't have these shoes. When will you be getting your next inventory that I can come back and maybe buy them? Oh, next month on the first of the month you're getting a new shipment okay i'll just come back and get them then right the mind can reside peaceful so it's not the new shoe itself it's the mind longing and wanting and yearning for it so searching for knowledge you can do that with an attachment or with this craving desire or you can do it without it it all depends how the mind is trained and you can have all of these things and all these possessions all these things in your life you don't have to give up your job your car your relationships to attain enlightenment you just have to train the mind not to pursue it with this mental longing and strong eagerness
2: well uh, seeing that we have uh, several questions in zoom so let's go to nick
4: yes teacher can having the breakthrough establishing right view help someone with substance abuse
1: absolutely the reason why we experience substance abuse is because the mind is experiencing painful feelings it has sadness anger frustration and this person and i've done this in the past long long in the past where the mind craves pleasant feelings this is the whole problem it craves happiness it craves excitement it it craves this thrill this euphoria so the person who's has having substance abuse problems they're craving permanent pleasant feelings and the mind is chasing after these pleasant feelings and it's reverting to this substance in order to create the pleasant feelings one of the problems that we're experiencing in society is society thinks that everybody should be happy and you should be happy permanently and there's this kind of expectation that happiness is permanent. But you've already experienced happiness multiple times in your life. And happiness is not permanent. It's a conditioned feeling. We can get to this unconditioned joy where the mind is always joyful. But this conditioned happiness is not permanent. So a person who is experiencing substance addiction, they're chasing after happiness. They're chasing after those pleasant feelings wanting to hold on to them permanently. And when they realize that that's not possible, that it's a false belief, it's a delusion, it's it's a unknowing of true reality that the mind can actually do that, then you realize that what you're doing, chasing after these pleasant feelings through using substances, it's never going to produce a permanent pleasant feeling. Instead, you've got to eliminate the craving, desire, attachment, wanting happiness to be permanent, and instead realize that part of the process of the unenlightened mind is it's going to experience these discontent feelings until you train the mind to get closer and closer to enlightenment, where you can experience this permanent joy. One of the other challenges along this line is people are taught that wealth and money or fame is what produces happiness. So there's a lot of people in the world that are chasing money and wealth and fame in order to get to permanent happiness. Well, if this was true, then that means everybody who's rich and wealthy will be permanently happy. But that isn't true because we see people who are rich and wealthy and famous, they also have a lot of challenges with discontentedness. They'll have anger, frustration. Some people even commit suicide. If it was wealth and fame and fortune that leads to permanent happiness, then why would a movie star commit suicide? Why would a rich person commit suicide if they were permanently happy? So you've got to understand that it's not feasible to acquire wealth or fame or acquire some object that's going to create permanent happiness these conditioned feelings are the problem. The mental longing with strong eagerness is the problem that the mind is longing for happiness. It's longing for pleasant feelings. Therefore, it's longing for the substance or it's longing for wealth. It's longing for fame. It's longing for something. And when it's chasing after it, it's almost like an addiction. And when you stop doing that through training the mind and this entire path to enlightenment using meditation and other aspects of the buddhist path then you're actually addressing the real problem and you can get rid of substances and no longer use them as chasing after these pleasant feelings because that's not going to produce permanent contentedness it's just going to produce madness in your life as long as you're pursuing happy, pleasant feelings through substances that cause heedlessness. We have a question from Christina. She writes, so to clarify, it's okay to feel
4: love for all beings. That would be a mental state. But being in love with one person is a craving. Is that correct?
1: That's not 100% correct, Christina. So remember, it's not the actual object or the thing that is the craving, desire, attachment what people misunderstand about love, and we're gonna be talking about this in chapter 15, is there's what people are practicing and they think is love is actually craving, desire, attachment. Then there's something called true love, which is unconditional love. What people think is love, which is really craving, desire, attachment is, I love you, therefore I want you to be with me because you make me happy. And now I have these conditions. And if you meet these conditions, I love you. And then as soon as you stop meeting these conditions, I no longer love you anymore. I've fallen out of love with you. But that's actually not true love. That's selfishness. You might even call that conditional love, but it's not actually love. It's craving, desire, attachment. It's I will love you as long as you meet these conditions. And one of the conditions is that you're with me. And when you're with me, I feel good. I feel happy. And therefore, I love you. But that's not love. There might be love inside of there, but this description is not love. It's craving, desire, attachment. I want you to be with me because you make me happy. That's craving, desire, attachment. I'm basing my inner happiness on the condition that you're with me. That's craving, desire, attachment. What true love is, is I love you Therefore, I would like to see you be peaceful. That's what true love is. True love isn't conditional. You can't fall in love with someone and out of love with someone if you're practicing unconditional love. One of the best ways to think of unconditional love is if you have children, then you know that if your children are angry, frustrated, irritated, if they do bad things in the world, you love them regardless. They're your child. If they do wonderful things in the world, you love them. There's nobody that can shake you off of the love that you have for your children. That's unconditional love, right? But over here, when we have life partners and we have other relationships, we have this conditional love or what I call craving, desire, attachment, where if you meet my conditions, I will love you and I will say I love you but as soon as you stop meeting my conditions, I don't love you anymore and I'm gonna push you out of my life because I don't love you. But that's not love, that's actually craving, desire, attachment. So you can have loving kindness and compassion for all beings. You can actually love everyone. You can love a life partner, you can love children, you can love your neighbors, you can love your coworkers, you can love a stranger on the street when you understand what true love is. What true love is, is I love you, therefore I would like to see you be well. I would like to see you be peaceful. So this stranger on the street, you can have love for them. I love you. I would like to see you be well, right? But it's when you have this condition that if you treat me well, I will love you. But when you stop treating me well, I will not love you anymore. Or when you do these certain things, I will love you. And when you stop doing those things, I will no longer love you. That's not actually love. That's wanting things to be a certain way. That's craving, desire, attachment. So to get to true love, you need to just have a genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. And then you can love everybody, a life partner, children, friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, a stranger on the street.
4: We have a question from Jim who writes, What about the discontent from more fundamental, non-material causes? Examples of injustice, racism, etc. To what extent does having this discontent motivate us to take action and work to improve the situation?
1: So see, in that situation, you're causing your own discontentedness. You want things to be a certain way in the world. You're having craving, desire, attachment. having a mental longing and a strong eagerness to see everybody be loving and no one to be racist so remember the buddhist teachings in this particular case are not teaching what's right and wrong necessarily because it would be wonderful if the entire world every single being in the world had loving kindness and compassion for each other it would be absolutely wonderful but because of the universal truth of impermanence We don't have everybody in the world that are permanently treating everyone with loving kindness and compassion. But because the mind craves permanence, when you see racism, or when you see some of those other things you talked about, like injustices, you think that that's what's causing you to be angry. But in reality, it's your own craving, desire, attachment. Wanting to see all beings be loving and kind That you're causing your own discontentedness so you've got to let go of wanting things to be a certain way in the world and realize that you can't influence and you can't control everyone in the world you can't get to a point where you're teaching everyone to not be racist as long as there's human beings in the world for now when there's not a lot of enlightened beings in the world there's going to be racism, there's going to be hatred, there's going to be corruption, there's going to be certain things that you observe that you think are not happening based on the justice of humanity's laws. And therefore, as long as you have that craving for permanence, wanting things to be a certain way, you're going to experience discontentedness. So you have to let go and realize that things are going to be however they are in the world. All these beings are making individual decisions and you can't control other people's decisions. So you've gotta let go and train your mind to focus on your own practice, not wanting and craving to change the world. You can't change the world. Individual beings can change their own mind, but you can't change the world. This is another thing that people walk around with a misunderstanding about. People are taught that it's up to them To go out and change the world. These natural laws of existence are permanent. You can't change the natural laws of existence. You can't create a situation where everyone is permanently loving and kind. Because it's not up to you. It's up to each individual. And because of the universal truth of impermanence, you're not going to live in a world during this life where all beings are loving and kind. It's just not going to happen. But the more that the mind wants it and craves it, not understanding the universal truth of impermanence, you're going to keep making yourself discontent because the mind is craving permanence. So you've got to let go of that, realizing the universal truth of impermanence. And also another part of this is you need to understand the natural law of karma, this cause and effect, this action and result. While an individual might be able to circumvent human laws and maybe they have committed a crime, for example, and they go to court and the human laws don't hold them accountable right now at that particular moment, they can't escape the results of their decisions. The cause and effect or action and result, the results of their decisions, this natural law of gamma of cause and effect, they can't escape that. They can circumvent and kind of delay human activity in terms of court proceedings and stuff like that. But this natural laws of existence, this natural law of gamma, they can't run and hide from that. They are going to experience that either in this life or some future life. So this can help the mind to let go. Instead of trying to want things to be a certain way in the world, you can see that the world is functioning on these natural laws of existence. One of the reasons why the mind keeps experiencing discontentedness it is this craving-desire attachment, but it's the mind struggling and having difficulties to understand the world. Because of this ignorance, this unknowing of true reality, not understanding the Buddhist teachings and these natural laws of existence, the mind struggles and have difficulties in the world understanding how can somebody commit murder? and then go to court and be found not guilty, and then go free when everyone pretty much knows that this person has committed murder. And now you craving things to be permanent, you don't understand that these human laws are imperfect because humans are involved. But this natural laws of existence, this natural law of Gamma, it's not created by humans. It's not administered by humans. It's not administered by any particular being. It just happens as part of these natural laws that that person who got off from the court case, they can't escape the natural law of gamma. So they will experience the results of their decisions. But because the mind doesn't understand these natural laws and it's stuck in this darkness, so to speak, The mind keeps experiencing this discontentedness, struggling and having difficulties because it's lacking this wisdom, this moral conduct, and this mental discipline, not being able to understand the world through these natural laws. So the more that you learn and practice these teachings and you understand the natural laws of existence, you can transcend all of this discontentedness because you now understand the world through these natural laws. It's a real struggle to live in a world that we don't understand. And that's essentially what the unrelated mind is experiencing. It doesn't understand these natural laws of existence, so therefore it struggles and constantly struggles to understand what's going on in the world. And the more that you understand these natural laws through the Buddhist teachings, then you can look at the world and you can completely understand everything that's happening, no longer craving for things to be a certain way, but just know that they are the way that they are because of these natural laws. Jim has a follow-on to this. He asks, if we eliminate
4: this type of discontentedness, would we still be motivated to work towards improving these situations?
1: So you have to let go of wanting to improve things, so to speak, in the world. There's no harm in having a goal or an objective or an interest to help beings in the world. And that's what you can do as part of your contribution to the world. But if the mind is craving it, if it's longing, if it's yearning to fix the world, then you're going to experience discontentedness. Instead, you got to let go of wanting to fix everybody else and focus on fixing your own mind because you can't help other people if you haven't first helped your own mind. You have to fix your own mind to let go of the craving to help others. Once you let go of the craving to help others, then you can help others, right? The Buddha helped people more in the world than any other human being that I know of. He didn't have craving, desire, attachment to help people, but he pursued it as a goal, as an objective, as an interest. So as long as there's this mental longing and strong eagerness to change the world, then the mind's going to experience discontentedness. But you get rid of the craving, desire, attachment, and now you train your own mind to experience enlightenment. Now you're actually able to truly help the world because you can't help the world if you haven't helped yourself yet. That's what you need to understand too. So you can help others in the world by practicing loving kindness and compassion, but you can't do that when there's craving in the way. When you have this longing and yearning to help others, craving standing in the way, it's polluting the mind, and you're going to keep causing discontentedness. The more you try to help people and you can't do it, then you're going to keep getting discontent over and over. So what a wise practitioner would do, in my view, is help their own mind, focused on their own practice first, develop their own mind, improve the condition of their own mind, and then through practicing loving kindness, through practicing compassion, through practicing generosity without craving. Now you can actually help others, but you shouldn't do that as a craving, but just as part of your practice to be a good human being who's contributing things in the world to benefit others. But if you do that with a craving, it's going to always lead to discontentedness.
4: Rick has a question in relation to Jim's question. Rick asks, if the feelings of injustice and anger is inappropriate, what is the appropriate response to these things from the point, point of view of an enlightened mind?
1: It's not that anger and frustration are inappropriate. It's just that it doesn't benefit you. Okay, so you see somebody on the news who murdered somebody, and there's a ton of evidence that they've murdered somebody. And they go to court, and they're found not guilty. What does anger and frustration do? What is it? How does it benefit you? How does it make your life better? It doesn't. So it's not that it's inappropriate. It's just that it doesn't have any benefit for your life. Instead, if you have a situation that you would like to remedy or that you would like to contribute to, maintaining your calmness and composure, you're then going to have mindfulness. You're then going to have concentration. You can then access your wisdom. But getting angry and frustrated, even maybe throwing things at the TV or yelling and screaming, It's only going to dilute the mind and create more pollution in the mind where now you affect the condition of the mind and the people around you, you start acting unskillfully and you start speaking and acting in ways that are unskillful. So what an enlightened mind is going to do if they see something on TV where someone truly murdered someone and they got off, then people would just understand like, okay, that person might have circumvented humanity's laws in terms of societal laws but they can't escape the natural law of karma. They can't run, they can't hide from that. So society's laws are here to kind of help people to live a certain way of life, but this natural laws of existence are a much higher law that the person can't escape from that. So if you understand and see the natural law of karma very clear as an enlightened being, seeing somebody get off from a court case They haven't gotten off from anything they've maybe gotten out of that particular situation but they can't escape the natural law of gamma that they're going to still experience the consequences of that murder they're going to have guilt or shame or fear they're going to have a damaged reputation in the community they're going to have a shortened lifespan because of killing they're going to have aspects of their life that are very difficult they're going to have very hard time having friends They're going to have a very difficult time having a job and getting an income. They're going to suffer the consequences of what they did. It's just that you're not necessarily seeing it as it's actually happening. You might just be looking for a guilty or not guilty verdict. And if they get a guilty, you feel like justice has been served. And if they get not guilty, you think that justice hasn't been served. But you are not seeing the bigger picture of all the things that are going on in their mind the discontentedness that they're struggling with, the guilt, the shame, the fear, the reputation that follows them around, the lack of ability to have an income. You know, go look at some of the major court cases where people have murdered and they've gotten off and go look at what their life is like now. They've had constant problems over and over and over and over and over over again that they haven't really gotten off of anything because their mind is still polluted and they're still struggling with all of the pollution of mind that led to them killing somebody, they're still facing all kinds of problems in their life because there's still that pollution in mind that they vented that anger and hatred towards someone and killed somebody. They're now struggling with all kinds of other aspects in their life. So you can't look at society's laws and think that because they got a not guilty verdict that, okay, justice wasn't served, because that's just human justice, that's just society laws. Those are imperfect because they're made by human beings. But this natural law of existence, it's always there and you can't run and you can't hide from that.
4: Marion's looking for clarification. She writes, I've always thought it was okay to embrace my emotions for what they are with neither clinging nor craving, that they serve a purpose to help me navigate life. Wouldn't responding to life circumstances be okay as long as I don't have attachment to the emotions, rather respond in an inappropriate way, knowing that it's all temporary with the understanding that having these emotions are a human experience?
1: If someone would like to continue to experience discontentedness, they surely can. If you feel that sadness is something that's helpful for you, or frustration, or irritation, or guilt, or shame, or any of these other discontent feelings, if you'd like to hold on to them and you feel like they're helpful, you can do that. But what I'm sharing with you is that you don't have to. You can actually get to a point where The mind is completely peaceful, calm, serene, content with joy, no longer experiencing any of these discontent feelings. They're not helpful, in my view, that they only create more difficulties in life, that if you had the option of pressing a button and this button, you continue to remain discontent and experiencing these feelings. Or if you press this button and your mind can be completely peaceful for the rest of your life, no longer experiencing those feelings. You can choose which button to press. I think that people would be most interested in pressing the button for peacefulness, but it's work to be able to get there. And oftentimes the mind creates justifications of saying, oh, well, these feelings are beneficial, but you have to ask yourself how, how is anger helping you? How is it made your life better? Or how is sadness helping you? Or how is boredom or loneliness helping you? you can eradicate all of that from the mind, no longer needing to experience those discontent feelings.
4: No more questions on Zoom, teacher.
1: Okay. Do you have anything, Bassem?
2: No, teacher. No more questions.
1: Okay. So the things that the Buddha is sharing with you and that I'm sharing with you in this program are things that you most likely haven't been exposed to at other times in your life. And it can be a real challenge to understand these. You know, our mind grows up thinking that like what Miriam said that you know maybe anger is just part of the human condition and i've just kind of learned to accept it or sadness is something that i've always thought was somehow just part of this human life and i've just kind of learned to deal with it so the things that you're learning as part of this path to enlightenment they're new you haven't probably heard somebody share with you ever in your life that you can eradicate these feelings from the mind that they're not needed and it's a personal choice. It comes down to a personal choice of whether you choose to continue to live with discontentedness or not. And I can share with you someone whose mind used to be highly, highly, highly discontent. That's no fun. There's no enjoyment there. There's no benefit to anger and frustration and guilt and shame and shyness and boredom and loneliness. There is no benefit there for me whatsoever. So as part of this path to enlightenment, I chose to walk towards enlightenment and work towards this peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy. And for me, what I feel is that as the mind attains enlightenment, this is where life really truly begins because think about all the time, effort and energy that you spend being angry or frustrated or irritated. There's a lot of time and a lot of heartache and a lot of misery and despair that you can get rid of and think back over the course of your life you know if you're 30 40 50 60 80 years old you look back over your life and you know all the tears that you've ever cried the buddha says that all the tears we ever cried throughout our entire lives is more water than all of the water and all of the seas why do we need to experience all of that misery and despair we don't need to But we do because the mind is unenlightened, because we have this unknowing of true reality. The more that we learn and practice and train the mind, we can escape, we can eliminate all of these discontent feelings. But that's a personal choice that we have to make in order to be dedicated, determined, and diligent to learn and practice. And it comes down to a personal choice. Not everybody who learns and practices these teachings is going to see it through. Not everybody is going to move to enlightenment, because it's a real challenge to progress on this path. The Buddha provided the guidance that don't shrink back from the struggle. Even learning these Four Noble Truths and establishing right view, it can be a real struggle. And as you struggle, if you decide to shrink back, and maybe you decide not to pursue the path, that's okay. That's your choice. But just know that you're going to continue to experience discontentedness. And that's your choice. And I wish you well if that's what you choose to do. But if you're interested in eliminating all of that sadness and anger and frustration, you can do that. And this is the path that will be able to help you do that. You just need to apply the dedication and diligence to doing it. So next week on Sunday, we will be sharing chapter five, which is the Eightfold Path. This is the path to enlightenment. In this program, I shared that as part of kind of the introductory classes to kind of move us towards this entire path in this entire program. I kind of did three classes where I explored this path in detail, but here, as part of the book, chapter five goes into a lot of detail of exactly what the path is. This is how you train the mind, this is your life practice. So the title of this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment, that is chapter five, the path that leads to enlightenment. And as you learn and practice that, you will be able to train the mind to experience more and more peacefulness where you'll see the discontentedness slowly diminish and the mind becoming more peaceful. So if you'd like to read the chapter before after class or before and after, you can do that. We'll cover that on Sunday of next week. And then this Wednesday, we're doing our fourth class in a four-part series of loving-kindness. I'll be wrapping up our four-part series of loving-kindness meditation on Wednesday with our final class. And then the subsequent Wednesday, we'll be moving into chanting and helping you guys understand what Buddhist chanting is all about and why someone may or may not decide to practice chanting. Chanting isn't a requirement for attaining enlightenment. You wouldn't need to learn how to chant to attain enlightenment. But if it's something that you're curious about to understand, and two Wednesdays from now, I'll be doing our first class of a four-part series to help you understand what Buddhist chanting is and why someone might choose to practice that or not practice it. So between now and a future class, have a lovely rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadee